when you review an album, like an album is usually like one hour because it's only an hour long. You can probably listen to it 40, 50 times even before your review is actually due. That's significantly lower as a time and labor investment than getting a game like Skyrim and being like, okay, I'm going to have to try to just like sprint through this for the next like 100 hours and like see what I can come up with essentially. This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. This is Drew Dixon from Love Thy Nerd. I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, and uh, I'm going to figure out a way to say Love Thy Nerd one more time. <laughs> Love Thy Nerd. Uh, <laughs> join with me is today is... Extreme product placement. Yeah, yeah. Did I mention that I work with Love Thy Nerd? Yeah. Uh, Chris Gwaltney is here with me, who happens to be the chief executive nerd at Love For Thy Nerd. Hey, Chris. Love Thy Nerd. For... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hey, this is the uh, Humans of Gaming podcast. Uh, welcome. And we know, uh, yeah, you have lots of ways to spend your time. And we're just glad you wanted to spend it listening to us talk about Love, love That Nerd. No. Uh, yeah, this is a podcast where we find people in the gaming industry, whether video games, board games, otherwise... And we just try to get to know them as people. You know, there's so much content out there. There's so many games being played. And it's really easy to forget about the humans behind uh, these games that we consume at an alarming rate. And we just want to be reminded that there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that go into these things. Mm -hmm. And just want to appreciate those folks and get to know them as people. So that's why you're here. And uh, we had a really interesting chat uh, that Drew will start telling you about. Yeah, so we chatted with Yannick Lejac. I had to like practice that before to say <laughs> Yannick because yeah. every time I see Yannick, I want to see I want to say Yannick. Yeah, um, even though that's it's because not. you're like that's the because I want to say Yannick too, but that's because I'm from Indiana, and that's just yeah. kind of like our aunt. Eh, like we just want to do that eh, <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Yeah, there's like a, I don't know if he's famous, but there's um, there's a hockey player that's named Yannick, and it's actually pronounced Yannick. Um, and so I'm uh, like, I just think I just of Yanni. That's part of it. Yannick. Um, Yanni. But Yannick and I go way back to like the early two, 2010s, I guess, mm -hmm. when we uh, sort of connected over games writing. We were both writing about games for some some of the same websites, I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he he's just a phenomenal games writer. He worked uh, full time as a full time editor for Kotaku for several years. Um, was written for the Wall Street Journal and, uh, gosh, I mean, you name it, uh, gaming sites. He's he's probably written for them at some point. Um, and he transitioned from working for Kotaku to being a full time writer for Blizzard. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that company, but they've made a couple Barely. small games like uh, yeah. World of Warcraft and Starcraft and um, Overwatch. So. Uh, yeah, he got to, to write, uh, for them and that's, that's a pretty hard gig to land. So obviously, <laughs> uh, Yannick is super, super talented and super thoughtful guy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, also he's, um, 
he's your hernia bro so that's kind of yeah. cool <laughs> yeah this is wild like i've been dealing with these two hernias for the last several weeks and come to find out he also has two hernias and we are getting surgery on the same day which is just freaking wild so yeah we're hernia bros yeah. now but man this is such a cool conversation and honestly like it's long guys it's a long one and um but I think it's worth it. Like it's all super interesting stuff. He he peels back the curtain in a lot of ways on some just kind of inner workings and things that, you know, the mm-hmm. normal casual everyday gamer like us won't know about, you know, games journalism and the games industry. Yeah, like I don't I think we honestly in the whole time maybe asked like three questions. <laughs> he just talked, man. Like <laughs> yeah. he was just re- he came ready, I think, to just yeah. share and bear it all. So I think it was really like we're pretty privileged to get to hear from him in this way and get to hear all that stuff. So, yeah. 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 And I think like there's this, uh, there's a lot of people out there who think how cool would it be to write about games Mm -hmm. for a living or to write for games, you know, to write uh, like lore or or to write storylines for, for various video games. And I know there's a time when I thought that would be like the ultimate job. Um, But man, it's a hard field to yeah. get into. And so if you're curious about that, I, I don't know that this would necessarily encourage you. Yeah. <laughs> Hope it doesn't tread <laughs> but, on your dreams too much. <laughs> no, but I do think it's important to realize like yeah. how wild uh, the world of writing about games and writing, writing for game studios is how competitive it is. Um, and, uh, and just, I mean, while at the same time, games are freaking cool. They're amazing. And I'm glad I get to play them and write about them and enjoy them. But yeah. um, Yeah. Well, if nothing else, he just hit this conversation was another really great reminder of the the whole thrust of our podcast, which is like, hey, this is a human experience of the game industry. And, you know, I think it hopefully creates empathy in us for our Mm -hmm. fellow person um, to better understand them and to more appreciate the work, man, the work that goes into these things that we enjoy so much. So, yeah, for sure. And also, uh, Yannick mentions it at the end of the episode, but just want to take a minute and plug, like he's had a horrific go of things with regard mm-hmm. to his health, uh, health costs, like the cost of his health care. Um, and so we're going to put a link to his GoFundMe page. So if you hear this podcast and you're like, man, you know what? I haven't spent all my Christmas money or whatever. Yeah. Um, or, or, hey, you know, I just got a little bonus at work. Or if you just say, hey, I've got 20 bucks to give. Um, hey, we all just got those is. Trump bucks. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. If you haven't spent your <laughs> stimulus money, um, yeah, throw some Yonick's way. And yeah. uh, that would really help him because he's, man, he's, he's deep into it. Uh, deep into trying to pay for um, some relief. Hey, it's a great way to love thy nerd. You just need to find another way to say that. (laughs) That's right. All right. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Yannick Lejac. Enjoy. Video games, especially free-to-play games, but also like the free-to-play games kind of took a lot of these lessons from places like Nintendo originally, where you kind of put you put arbitrary obstacles up at different points to kind of stop a person's progress. And those obstacles, especially in free to play games are how you then monetize the game. So it's like, okay, you played like 20 minutes. Now you have to spend money if you want to keep playing or Mm -hmm. 
you know, in Super Mario World or whatever, it's like, okay, you got to the end of the world, but now you need 10 stars and you only have eight. So you have to go back and you have to replay to get another two stars or I don't, I'm probably getting the currency wrong there. But um, it was really horrifying because I was realizing like this whole system is operating on a very similar mindset where it's like, there's all these arbitrary points where it's like, well, no, you can't get the surgery yet because you have to have another meeting with another specialist. And then you have to get a <laughs> note of approval from that specialist to then get approved mm. for this. And like they kept denying, um, like they kept refusing to kind of like accelerate or appoint or schedule the surgery. But then it was also this question of like, okay, if you can't do that, then you have to at least provide me with something in terms of like a pain management solution because you're a doctor and I'm telling you that I have a health problem and you're not helping me with it. And yeah. that became this whole other thing of like, you're only allowed to be approved for a pain management specialist. If you've officially met with all these different experts who rule out, they, they have to all agree unanimously that they can't find a cause for your pain so I'd have all these other meetings just before I could even meet with a pain specialist. And then um, that was really hilarious because then I got into the pain specialist and I was describing my symptoms <laughs> and the pain specialist was like, I don't understand why your surgeon is so convinced that the hernias aren't the cause of the pain. Cause this really just sounds like your hernias are causing you pain. And I was mm -hmm. like, Oh, you got to be kidding me. But <laughs> it's similar to me or it seems similar in that way that it's like, they put all these barriers up and a lot of these barriers don't exist for like, they don't exist in healthcare for the purpose of actually meeting or responding to human need. They exist because insurance companies and hospital networks have mm. collaborated to install them to be like, if we put these barriers here and, and this is the part that gets really scary to me. Cause I don't know how intentional this is, but it's like, if you put these barriers here, one, people are going to have to pay for more stuff and insurance companies are going to be able to bill hospitals more. And yep. then like, you know, you have all these like required consultant meetings where like I've had like five different meet or not five, three different meetings with this surgeon where it's literally like I would call them and be like, why do I have to have another meeting? And they're like, the surgeon needs to examine you before he can decide blah, blah, blah. And then the surgeon would literally walk into the room and be like, okay, and then turn back around and walk out. So I'm like, clearly the meeting isn't actually required by anything other than this bureaucracy that's enabling it. And um, yeah. the part that's scary to me is that it seems like, it seems like at some points it's like the idea is kind of maximizing pain and human suffering is a way to kind of accelerate that and put people, if you think about it in gamification terms, it puts them in a place where they're psychologically primed to be willing to pay these astronomical costs for their yeah. like for their health care. Just because like, you know, if you think of where I was when I paid that fifteen hundred dollar bill for my colonoscopy, which is relatively small that you didn't in terms really of bills. Need. Right, right. It's like yeah. that was this whole thing that I won't get into, but it, it took me like the Cleveland Clinic, the hospital network I've been working with, they kept messing up different things before that meeting was supposed to take place. And especially during COVID, you have to follow this very strict regimen. Like I had to get a COVID test by a certain date. I had to have the mm -hmm. results of it by a certain date. I had to have, um, 
I had to take this gigantic jug of some laxative by a certain date. And they just kept messing things up. And then it would take me like sometimes eight to 12 hours at a time to fix their mistake just to make sure that the appointment still happened. Mm. And then finally, when I like showed up for the appointment itself, they gave me the actual price tag, which is another thing that feels very like video gamey or, or kind mm-hmm. of modern technology app like to me that's the thing that like drives me nuts the about real cost you know yeah, yeah yeah that drives me nuts about our healthcare system um i live in tennessee but that's you know we've had two children here in the state of tennessee oh god and it's yeah. just How insane must be so it's so expensive <laughs> and they don't tell you uh nobody wants to talk about it uh, nobody yeah. wants to like talk like real numbers either they're just like oh you know uh don't worry about it uh like and you can't they don't even really they're not even really very upfront about the payment plans and stuff like you talked about before like you really have to dig to discover that those are things you can do um which is very not like pro uh health (laughs) like the health of human uh, beings try not having insurance so my wife and i (laughs) we just uh we just got insurance within the last year and we're, you know, I'm 34 and she's 29. Um, so, I mean, the first 10 years of our marriage, like we didn't have insurance. And so we would just go and pay cash like for things that we needed to do. And she has like a prescription that she needs for her thyroid. Mm-hmm. Um, but dude, like when you walk in and they say, oh, let me have your insurance thing. I wouldn't have insurance. We're just going to pay cash. It's just like they short circuit. They have no idea right. what to do or how to tell you like, Oh, it's this much or that. Like anyone you're paying cash, you need to know those things. Cause like we can't yeah. just go to this appointment if it's going to bankrupt us. Like we need to know how much it is. And mm-hmm. dude, it was always a runaround anytime well, we wanted to figure I mean, that out. In a slight, I mean, not the same boat, but slightly similar in some ways in the sense that like we've always had a high deductible plan. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, for yeah. the last several years uh for the reason of like we have a health savings account that we're pretty like committed to like saving for things um in and you know it's just a decision we wanted to make uh wanted more income as opposed to paying more for right you know insurance but that because our deductible is so high i always want to know i always want to know what things cost and it's uh i mean i had a much less serious uh health issue um, a few months ago where I just had horrible abdominal, abdominal pain and, um, you know, went to the, went to a doctor. The doctor was like, Hey, if this doesn't go away after I, they were like, we're pretty sure it's just a stomach virus. And mm-hmm. if it, if it gets any worse, go to the ER. So I listened oh, to that God, advice yeah. and I went to the go ER. To the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went to the ER and it was horribly expensive and they had no help for me. Like zero, I didn't get any help at all. Um, that and yeah, you know that's the other thing because like oh sorry I didn't mean to oh no no I mean just it turned out it was it was it probably was just a bad stomach virus and some really bad like it's probably more information than anyone needs but just some bad constipation that was making the stomach virus worse um, <laughs> so you <laughs> could poop <laughs> yeah. you know what you need so... to try for constipation I've been using one of my friends got me some Epsom salt. Because, like, one of the only things that has helped a lot with pain relief has been taking baths. And um, Epsom salt is, like, one of the most valuable commodities in my life right now. Like, if it was, you know, if it was, Mm -hmm. uh, 
I don't know, some some resource management sim, it would be like probably one of the most valuable things in my in my <laughs> roster. Because one, it works that as video that, terms but for it's us. also like a super strong laxative. Um, and I think I don't in my experience because I had a lot of that when at the beginning of this, I was briefly given. Um, I was given uh, very like two day prescriptions to Tylenol three a couple times, and Tylenol three is the kind of like it's treated like this massively controlled substance, especially in Ohio. But in more advanced countries, it's just sold over the counter because they're not as horrible as us. But um, it's considered like bad and scary because it's the first level of Tylenol that has uh, codeine in it, and mm-hmm. um. I took that, but then, like, they... Speaking of the ER, the thing that's really messed up about drug laws in Ohio for these kind of anti-opioid measures is the only place you can go to even get um, prescriptions for Tylenol-3, let alone, like, actual powerful opioids like, you know, um, like Oxycontin or Vicodin or something is is the er so that's what's really messed up is it kind of forces people into this position especially if they're actually in serious like incapacitating levels of pain or they're just genuinely addicted to opioids it forces them into this position where they're like okay i can either go to the er over and over again like go visit multiple er's in the area i live in because if you go to one er routinely they're they're gonna stop believing you obviously um like i can go there and i can pay like 600 to two thousand dollars a pop to get a two-day supply of vicodin or i can go buy heroin for like twenty dollars on the street somewhere you know um Hmm. And that's like that core dynamic in and of itself is one of the really awful parts of this whole kind of anti-opioid laws, I think, because it so clearly incentivizes people to go kind of find um, illegal opioids, which are obviously super dangerous. But I was saying that because um, after that, I tried Kratom for a little while, which is disgusting, but (laughs) kind of helped me for a little bit, thankfully. But opioids and kratom both cause a lot of constipation, which when you have something like a hernia having, well, constipation can actually cause hernias or be one of the Mm -hmm. kind of factors of them in the first place. But then if you already have one and you're really constipated, it can be. um, Don't push too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was trying a bunch of over the counter laxatives and then finally I went to uh, went to Epsom salt and that was like the. It was like the scorched earth policy. It just like, you know, it, it was the one that just cleared me out entirely, but it was not a, not a health. It was not a fun or, or yeah. a enjoyable process when I did it. But if you have that problem again, I'd say try a Epsom salt. Cause it's yeah, like, get on no, the Epsom salt. it's like the like, good nuclear to know. grade one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't wish that pain on anyone for sure. Uh, it, uh, it was no joke and I didn't have hernias to, uh, amplify the pain, but um, so wait, Chris, well, that's hilarious. To the, uh... I'm going to get my surgery on the sixth too, so we should. Uh, oh, dude, you know, lend each other more. That is like, support. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've never, uh, I've never gone under for anything before, like anesthesia. Oh, really? So it's like my first time having any kind of 
anything. The surgeon did tell me though that they may have a robot do my surgery. What? So oh. maybe I'll like come out the other side with some powers. <laughs> Better <laughs> he not was to know. Honestly, like I'm a pretty I'm a pretty relaxed, like kind of go with the flow person. I don't I don't get super stressed out in a lot of scenarios. But like this surgeon, I would think with like other people, like, well, let's take my wife for instance, like he would not have instilled any amount of confidence yeah. in most people <laughs> the way this surgeon, like he was just so nonchalant and like the way he just casually slipped into conversation <laughs> that I have two hernias instead of one. The fact that, you know, a robot will be doing my surgery instead of a human person oh with a human gosh. brain. Was he um, like, I might do it. But maybe yeah. I'll just have my robot do it. Yeah, just, depends. I'll just have, have my robot just gonna do it. Have, depends uh, on uh, C- if I'm I get... I'm C-3PO do your surgery. Depends on if I knock out those 18 holes in time. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> he was like the most chill bro, which is not something you really want from a surgeon. Yeah. I mean, I guess That's chill hilarious. could be okay, but like... It's yeah, good there's that... a certain level though. There's yeah, like there's a threshold of for chill. Sure. Cavalier, but... yeah. More like... Yeah. Like, hey, you know... Fun fact, you have two hernias, not one hernia. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do you get to meet the robot beforehand? <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be 5.30 a.m., so I'll barely be coherent. Mm. Oh, That's you wild. got to see. I didn't even get to schedule mine in advance. They call me the day beforehand to let me know, because I guess that's the way the Cleveland Clinic oh, OR works. Is they, Which makes sense. Like They kind of... I guess they leave at least elective surgeries open because if uh, more emergency cases pop up or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm supposed to wait until the day before to uh, to get the call to be like, okay, here's when, when it's going to go here's down. Here's the time. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think we kind of mentioned this via email, but we'll probably go, like one of the things we always ask people is like about your background, your upbringing. Um, so we might talk a little bit about religion and stuff, but always out of a desire to just hear from you and where you come from. And we just want you to feel like comfortable to be you and be honest. And there's no right or wrong answers. And we may occasionally contrast what we think about something from what you think, but never out of a desire to be like, you're wrong. And here's why. Um, so we don't want to feel like a debate ever. I don't think it really, honestly, like in all the recordings we've done with this, it's never felt that way. So um, anyway, just kind of as a, um, disclaimer, well, hey, I guess. first time for everything. So. Hey, that's right. That's good. That's right. I hate religion. No. <laughs> Great. I, uh, Perfect. I can't wait. Let's get into I, it. I don't hate religion. I, I'll, I'm, I don't, I don't know how I, do, I'm, I'm like, I'm one of those Jews in terms of my background that like was raised Jewish and I had a bar mitzvah, but I'm like, definitely not. Um, I'm definitely not like observant in the sense of like, I, I don't really believe in the kind of Old Testament God. And even yeah. if I did, like, I think the Old Testament God is a kind of messed up figure in a lot of ways. Like, he just kind of yeah. does a lot of stuff that I, I haven't read it in a long time, granted, but like stuff that to me seemed very There's like, some scary stuff, spiteful mm-hmm. or just like. If yeah. you didn't like the Jews being slaves, couldn't you have just like stopped them from being slaves in the first place <laughs> rather than like making them wander the desert and like go through all these awful, painful things to, mm-hmm. you know, whatever? What up, nerd? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. We hope you're enjoying it. But hey, did you know that Love Thy Nerd airs almost all of its podcasts first on LTN Radio? 
That's right. LTN Radio is your home for the best Christian rock, rap, pop, and indie music. And it's also the place to go to hear Love Thy Nerds content before it reaches the podcast feed. In addition to that, Love Thy Nerd creates a lot of content that's exclusive to LTN Radio that you're missing out on. So go check out LTNOnAir.com and listen for yourself. You can also download the Live 365 app on your smartphone and search and favorite LTN Radio or enable the LTN Radio skill on your Echo devices and simply ask Alexa to play Love Thy Nerd. Now let's get you back to that podcast. But that's like, I don't know, I think a lot of Judaism for me, especially at this point, is more about the kind of like, it's more about the kind of culture and the tradition and the sort of yeah. um, mm-hmm. kind of resilience of the Jewish people, which I find very inspiring. Um, and like I've, I've connected a lot with, um, <laughs> I remember <laughs> this is really, I started online dating a couple months ago too, for the very first time, which hasn't always coincided well with suddenly having these very post turnias, huh? Post is probably not a great time here. for, like up, like starting your uh, yeah profile I, or whatever. I, yeah, <laughs> I didn't even. I I more started it because like like I I don't know like anyone in Ohio, and the only people I did know once I got here were my classmates. And yeah, my classmates are cool, but a lot of them are like much younger than me. They're like right out of college. I'm 31, and I just kind of I got in like a kind of argument with one of my classmates at one point that wasn't super bad or anything thankfully but it made me realize like oh i uh i should like be looking other places than this zoom based class environment for like friends and social support in this new place that i live um and i remember (laughs) i like put that i was jewish on my profile and i don't i'm really interested to talk to more of my friends who live in other places because ohio is like also one of the most kind of conservative places i've ever lived certainly i mean there's like there was before the election like trump and maga signs like everywhere for instance Mm -hmm. yeah and then when i started the dating stuff which again like i don't have a ton to compare it to but i would go on ultimately didn't ohio ultimately go for biden so it's kind of like a big state isn't it it's a battleground state i always think of it that way anyway um but, like, you know, a lot of the profiles I was being introduced to were these, like, very religious, very Christian people. A lot of people mm-hmm. who, like, are the, either are in the army or they used to be in the army and they're posing with these, like, giant guns. And they're like, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. if you're, like, a communist, I'm going to shoot you kind of stuff. And, um, <laughs> and uh, but then some people, Cleveland, where I live specifically, has always had a very kind of historically large uh, Eastern European population. So there's always been a kind of big Jewish uh, kind of settlement in this area, so to speak. Yeah. And um, I remember this one uh, Jewish person who connect, who matched with me, started messaging me and was like going like, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, just like she's obviously very religious and she was like, Oh, Shabbat Shalom. Like, what are you doing for this? What are you doing for that? And then like <laughs> asking me what temple I was going to join. And, um, I said to her, I was like, I'm not really Jewish in that way, but like, you know, um, like, you know, I've always loved, like I have a really strong admiration for like a ton of, um, Jewish writers and Jewish artists and, uh, Jewish philosophers. So, that was what I said to her. I was like, I haven't 
I'm not like super Jewish right now, but you know, like, um, <laughs> it's been a big part of my personal history. And, you know, like I've always like really looked up to like Levinas as like the best, you know, continental philosopher of his day. Um, Levinas was a Jew who he was like, you know, he's like, He's like, you know, like the I, I think of him in some ways as the sort of like philosopher equivalent of someone like B.J. Blaskowitz, because he like literally he wrote one of his philosophical treatises, treaties, treaties, treat, I don't know what the plural is, by hand Things. when he was in a German POW camp during World War Two. And his big thing was that he was like originally a kind of fan of Martin Heidegger, who's like probably the most famous and uh, influential philosopher from that time. And Martin Heidegger ended up being a Nazi. So his whole philosophy about kind of like alienation and being and Dasein and all those other things he talks about, like at a certain point in his philosophical development, he just came to see the good things as the things that the Third Reich embodied and the bad things as the mm-hmm. things that the Jews embodied. And Levinas was one of the first philosophers who really kind of like um, took him on in philosophical terms that I barely understand because that language is so obtuse and complicated. But I always thought that was really cool. And I like personally, like, I don't know, I really connected with a lot of his philosophy when I read it in in college so um <laughs> it was just <laughs> how like, did how did she respond to that that person did not like she didn't res- she just said like oh i've never heard of levinas that sounds interesting and then uh we never talked again but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just summed up online dating yeah yeah that's probably true but my other kind of main exposure to religion was um or i don't like i don't even know what to call it and it's f-ing, like I don't even know if it's a beef with religion as much as with the 12 steps, but I was in, I started doing 12 step work and like going to the meetings and doing that whole thing, working the program as they call it when you're in the program when I was in Mm -hmm. California and it, I did it for like a long time and you know, like doing those kinds of things, if you do them the way that, well, you can't really generalize because every every 12-step meeting, let alone every kind of local community, is so different from one another. But mm-hmm. if you do it kind of by the book the way that I think most people in all the places I've been to meetings do it, you spend a lot of time because you have to go to like three to four meetings a week, which is already like three to four oh, hours or yeah. even as much as five or yeah, six. Yeah, a few things that I do three or four times a week. yeah. And then, you know, you have a sponsor and usually a sponsor, like you have to call them every day, sometimes multiple times every day. And then you have to like doing the actual 12 steps itself is like a lot of that stuff is actually the part that I find the most useful or found the most powerful about it, because a lot of it is just like personal reflection and writing. And then Mm -hmm. you kind of like pass it by your sponsor as like the person who's kind of holding you accountable for it. But um. But then I was in, so I was in OA. I originally tried to join Overeaters Anonymous. And the problem with OA is that's such a small program and there's so few men in it that I wasn't able to find a sponsor until I found this old woman who was very, very nice. 
Um, cause like there's a lot of kind of gender politics are very, very traditional in my experience in 12 step programs, like men and women aren't usually very comfortable sponsoring one another. Um, Mm -hmm. but I found this one woman who was very nice and very, she was willing to sponsor me. Um, but she's like a very, she's one of those kind of what they call old timers where like, she's been in AA and OA for like probably 30 40 years at this point and uh you know is just talking all about god and gratitude the whole time so yeah she was only willing to sponsor me if i also joined aa which i was open to doing at the time because like drinking wasn't it was something that i like didn't really enjoy anymore but it was also something that i could tell like was problematic at points Mm -hmm. um in your past Right. So then right. if you do two 12-step programs simultaneously, that's basically like all you have time for outside of work during a week, you know? Um, yeah. You have a very busy life at that right. point. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like I was thinking about that actually in terms of like this video game stuff too, because like one of the big challenges with video games that I think made working in the game industry unsustainable for me is that like like to be really like enmeshed and immersed in the game industry and kind of like up to speed on everything for me, at least like I just had to be playing video games constantly. Like that was all I ever did outside of work and on the weekends and everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember like um, when I was at Kotaku, I remember one of my bosses at one point mentioned that because we had, um, (laughs) <laughs> it was actually really funny they they instituted this kind of policy at one point when i was there and i know that they've done they've tried this again in a very in a slightly different way since then i remember seeing on twitter that uh steven the eic kind of said that they were going to be doing this a different way but to his credit one of the things that steven Tatillo, the eic as a manager was trying to do even when i was there was that um I think he was trying to acknowledge the sheer amount of labor and time commitment involved when you review a video game. Because if you review like a big Mm -hmm. open world video game, it takes like, you know, like if you do, if you try to like, whenever I review a big video game. Like if you try to beat something like, uh, I don't know, like um, Dragon Age or something, that's a mammoth (laughs) task, you know? (laughs) Right. Or The Witcher 3 or like one of the, like especially games (laughs) that have like big self-contained side quests and things that are like Mm -hmm. sometimes more interesting and more valuable than the main plot is or like skyrim like i have no idea how people reviewed skyrim (laughs) (laughs) that was like i was just starting out in games journalism when skyrim came out and i remember like um i remember seeing i think it was giant bomb one of the ways that they kind of adapted to it was they literally just had like a series i think it was either one or like a series of all day streams where they just played the game all day after it came out and like that was one of the ways they kind of grappled with it yeah Mm -hmm. um but like you know like skyrim like i remember i remember one point when i was at kotaku um kotaku like all the gawker sites had like a really and still has i'm sure has like a really vibrant and really active commenting base and there was some blog that someone did kind of just about like 
I, I think the I don't remember the exact subject or nature, but I think it was kind of asking the question of like, how much do you have to play of a game like Skyrim to feel like you've quote unquote finished it? And yeah. then one person in the comments posted a screen cap of their Steam log, and they'd played Skyrim for over a thousand hours. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I was like, and they were like, "Yep, definitely finished." It. Yeah. And I was like, "That's when the game beats you." Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. amazing, like too, how you. I mean, how many gamers out there? I think kind of have that mentality of like, if you're going to review this thing. You need to have experienced all of the time, all that it has to offer, uh, or else you can't give an objective, unbiased opinion or something. And I mean, like, in in addition to all the like, I don't know, GamerGate stuff. There's a whole lot of just really like basic level lack of empathy. (laughs) Sometimes it can feel that Mm -hmm. way amongst gamers about what we expect from from people who write about them or um, you know review them or whatever. And it's not even lack of it, that's it's you're totally right. And that's a great point about the kind of audience expectations, because it's like and especially when you filter in that cultural garbage. I mean, especially like Kotaku. So I don't know that I ever got sorry, just to go back. What was Kotaku's policy exactly that tried to give you some oh, uh, right, right, grace sorry. in that area? So when I was there, what Stephen instituted, and it was, I remember this was really funny when he sent this email out because Stephen has a very, um, one of the things I admired about him, but also always found funny on some level too, is he's like, he's like a very serious dude. And a lot of kind of journalists and and good editors are serious, obviously. But um, like, you know, you kind of have to, grok the the self-evident silliness sometimes of yeah writing about things like video games with the kind of way that journalists and people like that talk about their work <laughs> so <laughs> there would be yeah. like um i don't want to get more off topic sorry but there was like this really funny do you guys remember he wrote this post that i really loved when i was there the headline is the future of kotaku's video game coverage is in the present and um, mm-hmm. this was actually kind of like the bigger picture sort of rollout of, I think, what his kind of like grand plan or grand vision for Kotaku at the time was. And um, his policy on how he let us review games was part of that. Um, but so let me just read the let me just read this one passage of this because he quotes his own, own email that he sent to us. He's like, I described this shift in an email that I sent to the Kotaku staff on June 16th. I can confirm because I got this email. I forgot to read it for a while until someone else told me, like, hey, Stephen, (laughs) that's a big email that we all have to read. But he said, this is the email itself. He says, the future of games coverage is in the present. For too long, gaming coverage has focused on the vague future, the preview mindset of possibilities and maybes. And when it's involved in the present... It has been drenched in the dreary falseness of empty interviews, bland producer speak, and executive hype. It's neither been real enough nor true enough to do what is actually happening now. For too long, games reporting has involved staring at what what is opaque, maybe glimpsing something through it and reporting about that possibility, all the while ignoring so much of what is clearly visible and exciting around us. And exciting around us. Then I'll skip down a little bit. 
he kind of has this whole thing where he talks about the problem with games journalism today. And then he says, this is archaic and an insult to gamers. This is changing at Kotaku <laughs> as of now, <laughs> which I just like, I remember reading that and being like, Oh damn, like this guy, you know, like, I, I don't know. I always respected that about him is like, well, you know, someone has to take this, this seriously and think about it in these kind of terms for it to work at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but to go back, so the thing that he did when I was there was he created this policy that they call, he called Play Days, which I remember we all joked about because I remember like when he emailed us all about that, someone replied back being like, what are you going to do next? Have us have work days. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but the idea with it is like if you had a big game that you were reviewing, especially if it is one of those kind of Skyrim or Assassin's Creed, even Assa Assassin's Creed isn't big as big as Skyrim usually, but like, you know, some kind of mammoth open world game, yeah. he would give mm -hmm. you, you had to kind of like request them in advance, but he would give you time during work days, sometimes as much as an entire day or even two, where you could kind of just focus on playing, playing. the game as much as yeah. possible. Um, and then I think, I can't remember, but I remember seeing like on Twitter, I think a year or two ago that they kind of changed it in some way where it was more about like, if you reviewed a big game, you could then kind of like take time off the following week or something. And mm -hmm. I think both of those are kind of a recognition of the fact that it's just like such a serious, like, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that's like the thing I... I had some like pretty intense and kind of profound moments as a writer working in that framework of you kind of like get a review copy sent to you. And once you get it in your hands and you're like downloading it on your PS4 or PS3 or whatever, you know, it's kind of this mad sprint of like, okay, I'm going to try to finish this as quickly as possible. And then like, you know, you think as a writer or anybody who's kind of deploying critical and analytical faculties you want some time to be able to kind of reflect on something before mm -hmm. you start writing about it but you almost never have that time available so it's just like you know you finish it quote unquote finish it whatever finishing it means and like as the credits are rolling you're just like literally starting to like write whatever it is yep. that's going to be your review in like a google or word document or something and mm -hmm. For me, I mean, I remember the first time, like, a lot of the time, like, I started writing about games for kind of, like, mostly non-gaming outlets. So, like, the places that kind of started to get me noticed was I was writing for, well, actually, this was, like, I, I got started officially as an intern at uh, Kill Screen Magazine, when yeah. when that was still a thing and then um yeah i remember that because that was kind of uh that's your and i's connection more or yeah. less not that i ever wrote for i can trying to remember i wrote for kill screen but my very good friend richard clark wrote yeah, for kill yeah, screen, yeah and you guys connected through kill screen and then you and i ended up hanging out at at gdc a couple times and yeah so i i remember those days when you were working at kill screen yeah which was like for our our uh audience because Kill Screen's not around anymore, is it? I don't think it's the company. The, I call it the company formerly known as Kill Screen. I think they're now called Two Five Six, and it's more a kind of like advertising agency um, that kind of works with brands to sort yeah. of um, you like 
produce or or consult for them for some okay. sort of like yeah, yeah. content. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah it but went back in the day, it was kind of like I don't know how would you describe it? it's like the pitchfork or something of, yeah. of the video game world where it's like they're gonna take games seriously. It's in depth, very uh, very in depth articles that weren't just about whether games are good or not, but sort of about like. Yeah. What is their meaning and what is their meaning in the world as we interact with mm-hmm. them kind of Yeah. Kind, and when I was heady. there they actually literally had a partnership with Pitchfork where Pitchfork would display they had a little pane on their website where they would display kill screen articles and um that like a lot of things at kill screen, I think it was like a cool idea, but it was never really kind of like um uh I mean a place Didn't like really kill screen like a a place like kill screen just suffered from the fact that like you know you have these kind of like small bootstrap operations like that that are cool and they're really ambitious and the idea is like yeah we're gonna like look at games and we're gonna talk about them in this more kind of thoughtful and experimental and incisive way but then like they don't have the money or the budget and because they don't have that of like the ign's or the game spots it's like you can't support and hire a staff to do that. So then it always kind of comes down to just relying on, I mean, I think most of the people that work for kill screen were either games journalists themselves, like Gus Mastrapa. I might be mispronouncing his name right now, but uh, people like him who were already kind of established. And I think wanted to start doing different kinds of writing for their own personal edification or people like me who had like just graduated college or were still in college even or or like mm-hmm. had other careers and they just kind of like treated it as a hobby basically because you would yeah. make like I mean I think I made like something like 20 or 30 bucks for every individual article I ever wrote for Kill Screen which oh, gosh <laughs> then as an official before, intern right yeah what I was going to say before is one of the ways that Kill Screen really helped me was um <laughs> The, the founder of Kill Screen is a kind of, he's like a really interesting and kind of eclectic personality, but he, he's one of those guys who like, he just has lots of ideas and he's like, like he, he kind of is just like always tossing out things and like, they're very ambitious ideas, but I don't think he always kind of thought pragmatically of like, okay, how are these things going to kind of manifest as like concrete, successful editorial mm-hmm. products? So like, I remember at one point for me, he like, he just asked me kind of, he called me one day and he's like, hey, like, I want you to make a photography book about playgrounds all around the world. And I was like, okay, like that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but like, yeah. how are you going to like, you know, like, how am I going to do that and get it at the scale and the funding where I can like travel, like do yeah. like National Geographic level work where I'm like traveling the world, taking cool pictures of playgrounds, you know? That sounds like an awesome job. I know if you actually if they actually like funded that <laughs> if it's an actual job but yeah. so that sounds great the founder his name's Jamin he um he had he originally worked at the Wall Street Journal and I think he left to pursue kind of games um more singularly which is why he kind of founded kill screen and everything which which I think is yeah. a really cool mission and a cool inspiration and it's um you know I don't I, like. I know Kill Screen has gotten a bad rap over the years for lots of different reasons at the different kind of phases of its life, but I've always thought that that was like 
certainly something I could admire, like being at a very yeah, kind of the idea of it was an established really cool. legacy media outlet like the Wall Street Journal, which like mm-hmm. you know they're very conservative, obviously, and they kind of have a very traditional way of looking at things. So especially when it came to video games, it was like. I think probably when he left, they probably never even talked about them in terms of their entertainment value. It was purely in terms of like, well, Activision made a gajillion dollars with its latest Call of Duty release or something like that, you know? Right. Um, Yeah, yeah. So he had a relationship with this editor at the Wall Street Journal, very similar to the Pitchfork one, where this editor would basically ask him or i think more ryan the guy who was working as the main kind of editor of kill screen at the time he would email him and be like hey like i heard you know the new fallout's coming out soon or something for instance and like that seems like a big game why don't like can we get a review of that so then he would they had some kind of editorial partnership basically where they would publish kill screen articles with the kind of kill screen logo and everything um <clears throat> on on this uh wall street journal blog called the speakeasy which was their kind of like entertainment and pop culture blog so and like a lot of things at kill screen i mean like you know everyone was, was overworked and the staff was like two or three people plus like the latest army of interns that they hired to work for free mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. nobody yeah. really hired. maintained that relationship and I don't remember exactly how it kind of fell on me, but I like I started getting CC'd on emails between Chris, the Wall Street Journal editor, and the Kill Screen editor, and then eventually Chris just started emailing me directly. Um, so then I just started writing stuff completely for him. Um, yeah, not because like it wasn't like I was going around anyone or going behind anyone's back, but it was just like well. You know, like I was a freelance writer and I was just starting out trying to Mm -hmm. get my name out there. So Mm -hmm. it was obviously a great opportunity to be able to say I was published in the Wall Street Journal. And um, (laughs) yeah, it was I'm laughing. I've been there, man. I totally get that. It was also funny because like um, I suddenly got like so much more ingratiated with the video game PR industry because like, you know, they didn't care at all about a place like Kill Screen where it's like we don't. Mm -hmm. Like if we get reviewed by some like very small niche indie gaming outlet like that, that doesn't affect our bottom line at all. But if I can tell my boss that I got the Wall Street Journal to cover one of my games, like that's a huge mm-hmm. win for these people. So it was really hilarious because I'd get these emails and I'd get invited to these like exclusive meetings and like, you know, <laughs> um, especially yeah. with the kind of like I I'm curious how this works today because I think when I was in the kind of game reporting scene proper, it was um, it was sort of like making the first big and I think important transition out of the like really scummy and gross ways that video game PR and marketing used to literally like just buy coverage for their games yep. or they do stuff like I remember one of the early Assassin's Creed games. They just invited all these journalists to this like tropical resort to like spend a couple <laughs> days there. Yeah. And like the whole purpose of that is just to like get all these people there and get them liquored up and get them to have a Wine good time. And, and then it's like, oh, by the way, we have an AC game coming out. So you should like say something <laughs> nice about it. And that was like part of the deal. But 
I never like partook in that because I obviously could tell it was inappropriate. And also like, I just didn't have time, <laughs> but um, I would get these calls from like people and like bigger than the like individual PR rep for a game. It would be like the director or not the director, but like someone who is like clearly more senior in the kind of PR apparatus. And it was just funny. Cause I think a lot of them had this impression of me as like this, like, wall street journal like veteran wall street journal reporter and like i was just this dipshit who just graduated college and like i was literally <laughs> i was like interning because i knew i wanted to work in journalism but like i was working at like a deli for a while and then after that i got like i got this part-time job at this really fancy high-end restaurant in new york that my friend georgia worked at where literally my job was they hired me for a couple weeks just to peel onions because because wow. there was like this certain kind of onion that was in season then and they just needed someone to spend like hours every day peeling these onions in this specific way because there were just so many of them so i would like be working for like five six hours just peeling onions with like my eyes you know burning and everything in the basement mm -hmm. of this um in the basement of this restaurant and then i'd like open my phone you know leaving or going on a cigarette break and i'd get these emails from these people who like clearly thought i was like a more successful journalist than i was at the time <laughs> and that always seemed funny to me but i started talking about that just to illustrate again that it was like when i started writing for the wall street journal they were paying me 50 dollars a post so you know That's like crazy. i reviewed far even, i mean even yeah i mean like even the Wall Street Journal, it's yeah, amazing how people make a living doing this, you know? Right, and if you think about it, like, I remember I reviewed GTA 5 for them, and, like, you can That's definitely play GTA too. 5 for more than 50 hours. So if you oh, think yeah. of the sheer hours that you sink into it, and then the hours it takes to actually write something that's good, you know, you're making less than, like, a dollar an hour, which is just... Yeah. Um, you should just go back to peeling onions. Yeah. <laughs> I will say video games probably really less prepared tears. me and equipped me with the skills necessary to peel those onions. Cause you know, like you, yeah. you need just the capacity to handle incredibly repetitive tasks, which gamers are, you and know, uniquely to be able to with. weep. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but to your point, Drew, like about this thing about how gamers don't respect the kind of commitment and work involved in it. Like that's totally true. I think another aspect of that as well, that, Certainly when I was living in New York and was very like immersed in the kind of like young uh, sort of media folk kind of scene there, you know, like all the like, I was never like one of the very cool kids, but I had lots of friends who like worked at Vice or, um, you know, then I worked at Gawker, obviously. So then I worked next to all the people at Gawker and Jezebel and Deadspin who, you know, all have like much bigger Twitter followings than I do. But um there's a very like there's a very pronounced sense that I always felt and I definitely am not alone in this that other journalists really don't respect video game journalism either like they don't hold it in very high esteem and I think some of that is because of criticisms that like may be kind of harsh but certainly aren't illegitimate like the idea of like oh this is just like like you're just writing reviews that are bought and paid for by publishers. And that's obviously true because there's been so many controversies mm. showing that that's the case, you know, 
but mm-hmm. like i remember having an argument with one of my good friends um who i met because we were both interns at kill screen and then he went to work at vice for a number of years but he um he was he's no longer kind of dedicated to this beat but he was like a very very accomplished and talented music journalist and I met a lot of other music journalists that worked at Noisy, which is the Vice, or it used to be the Vice Music blog, and then um, Pitchfork, for example, or uh, The Fader, and like all those places are run out of New York. So it's like you kind of, you know, you meet people in that scene and you go to the same parties and you start to talk to all of them. And I remember arguing with, I, I don't think it was actually with Drew. Drew's the one that I met at Kill Screen because he obviously understood this on one level, but it was one of our mutual friends who's another um music journalist who um kind of always like sort of had these kind of inklings or like um implicit kind of wishes that he wanted to try like his hand at games journalism and i remember saying to him at one point that i was like look like a lot of people think of this and i think the reason why games journalism doesn't get any respect is that it's like you hear people describe these things or like the way I would complain about like, Oh God, I just got this game like two days before release. So that means I'm just literally going to have to play it for 30 hours straight and then write a review. Uh And they like, think like, well, you're just getting paid to play video games. Like, how is that hard? That sounds amazing. You Mm -hmm. know? And games in and of themselves, like the way that they're designed and the way they work, like, games often are a form of labor in and of themselves like you know grinding is a thing in video games because grinding is literally working on something you know what i said to this music friend of mine is like look like when you review an album like an album is usually like one hour maybe two hours long tops and you can listen to an album while you're doing other things so you can like listen to it as you're doing all your other tasks during a day. And then because it's only an hour long, you can probably listen to it like 40, 50 times even before like your review is actually due. Um, And that just makes it on some level, like that's significantly lower as a time and labor investment than getting a game like Skyrim and being like, okay, I'm going to have to try to just like sprint through this for the next like hundred hours and like see what I can come up with essentially, you know? Yep. And I remember there was a time that like I wanted, I had, I had thoughts of like, cause I got pretty serious around the time you and I met and, yeah. and stuff was when I was like starting to get pretty serious about writing about video games. And I was doing it while I had a full-time job. It was like just oh, God. <laughs> side project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was a time when I was like try- doing the math, like, okay, if I, maybe if I hustled, I could do this freelance. Uh, and sort of the conclusion I came up with when I did the math is like, I could, yes, but I would be a terrible, like this is around the same time when I had uh, my first child. I'd be oh, a terrible man, husband yeah. and father. <laughs> you know? And so I just said, I, I think For I have $50 to get- an article. Yeah. I was you're like, just I like, I you're just that like up. rocking your kid to bed with one hand while you're like, you know, moving around like you know gta with the other hand on your ps4 controller (laughs) yep that's totally how it would be um and and i i think the other thing that killed it for me any kind of dreams of doing that was the realization that um 
and I don't say this uh, in, in criticism of you because in any way, uh, but I was like, I would have to do like mainstream games journalism. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'd have to, Kotaku is maybe not the right example, but I'd have to work for someplace like Kotaku or IGN. I'd have to do that kind of stuff uh, constantly because that's where, where the money is. And I was interested in like the kind of stuff that Killscreen published, honestly. And also like, I was really into the intersection of like um, faith and religion and video right. games and that kind of thing. I was getting a lot of like, like freelance jobs to write about that and stuff and stuff like that. And, and there's not money in that interest Except for like the occasional uh, feature article, you know, here right. or there, uh, which I find and super so... interesting, especially from like the RPG angle. Because I remember, like, I think it was Tom Bissell. Tom Bissell, you know, like the he kind of stands out as one of the only, uh, and certainly one of the first people who like wrote about games and kind of achieved this sort of mainstream level of uh, yeah. recognition for doing so. He wrote, what was the book he wrote? Uh, uh, Extra Lives, why games, I think it was called. Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter. Right, and then, and then it's he, hilarious. He wrote for like he... uh, ESPN's thing that went Grantland. out of business. Grantland, yeah. Uh, he was like the first video game writer for Grantland. So he was like kind of this guy, just for our listeners who don't know who he is, kind of a very accomplished writer who um, wrote pretty seriously about video games. Kind of one of the one of the first guys to do that in addition the to things like Killscreen. Yeah, he was very much, um, as you were saying, Drew, like, I think it's important to consider someone like him, which is, I think that's unfortunately kind of the reality of, like, the situation you're describing as well, where it's like, if you're both, if you're trying to start out in writing in the first place, and you're trying to start out writing about video games, it's, it's a very uphill battle, especially if you don't <laughs> want to be working for the kind of ign or kotaku or GameSpot type places yeah. tom biscoll i think had a kind of i don't know if i'd call it like an advantage because it's clearly something he like earned himself because he's an incredible writer but like he had written a lot of very successful books and like short stories and was like he was already kind of like enmeshed in that very kind of like high-minded prestigious literary world of like the dave eggers of the world who yeah, Dave Eggers was the guy who founded Grantland, right? I think so. Or he was like one of yeah, like like that level of writer. You know, Dave Eggers. Like, I don't know if he's ever won the Pulitzer Prize, but I know one of his memoirs, a heartbreaking work, a staggering genius, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And he's like, he's the kind of person who, like, you know, his books show up on the year end look lists of like, you know, the New Yorker, or the New York Times, or something, and. I think because Tom Bissell had that kind of clout to him, he was able to do it in a way where he was like, Hey, like I want to write, like he wrote this amazing profile of Cliff Blazinski, Cliff Blazinski's the, um, he worked for Epic games for a yeah. very long time. And he kind of created gears of war uh, along with some, a lot of other successful things. Like I think he created jazz Jackrabbit too. He's um, kind of like, oh man! <laughs> he's kind of like one oh, of the man. rock stars of video games, like too. Yeah, uh, he strikes me as this guy who's like really successful in the world of video games, but like still has this persona where he comes across as like cool and not just a nerd or whatever, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, no, and he, he like totally milked that with the, like you know, 
I'm going to like drive sports cars and be a badass. And like, I remember like, I remember seeing him on Twitter at one point, like he, he quote tweeted, um, Oh, why am I blinking? John Carmack, John Carmack's the like, you know, formative kind of genius level programmer who, um, worked for id software for a long time, helping create, you know, doom and quake and everything. And he's like one of the people who's considered kind of like, a pioneer of 3d imaging technology for for video game graphics but i remember like john carmack's um twitter was i don't know what it's like today but i mean for a long time it was just him posting these like incredibly obtuse like super technical things about like what it was like working on like this engine that he was trying to create or something uh-huh. and i remember seeing cliff blazinski quote tweet him when he posted something like very, very dense and nerdy like that. And he, Cliff Bozinski was like, Oh yeah, all the time, man. And the joke was that like, you know, Cliff was like, you know, the kind of jock guy who would in high school, like, you know, give John Carmack a wedgie or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That sounds about right. But to go back to what I was saying before. So like Tom Bissell, you know, he was able to kind of start at this level where it wasn't like, writing $20 video game blogs for kill screen. Like he wrote like a print article for the New Yorker, which probably paid him like 20 to $30,000 just for that single piece of writing. Um, which like you try to not make it about the sheer economics of it. But like I started out in journalism when print was already dying, but I think like it was kind of officially at that point, this thing of like, if you ever made it into print for like a magazine, like the New Yorker, especially that was like, that was like a fleeting and humongous accomplishment. And I remember like saying to so many of my different journalism friends, it's like, if you got paid like three to $5 a word to write something and you're writing this, like, you know, 5,000 word article, you would work so much harder on that than you ever possibly could afford to literally if you're writing, you know, like a review of GTA five for $50 a pop or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's actually, I've always found Tom Bissell's case interesting too, especially because of the way that, you know, once like Gamergate and this whole ethics thing started, is that like the thing about like the thing that was always self-evident about it from the beginning was that it was like, it was never actually about ethics in journalism because like there were so many clear ethical issues that were just never touched on because they involved men rather than women, for instance. <laughs> and like Tom mm. Bissell, I, I don't, I want to be clear that I don't think he did anything eth- ethically wrong, but like he wrote this profile of Cliff Blazinski and then he kind of leveraged that into becoming a writer for the Gears of War series. Like he wrote several of the latest installments in Gears of War, you know? Um, and I just, I always thought that was an interesting example because like one, it says something a little depressing about the nature of games journalism, which is that like, well, games journalism, like all journalism is just fundamentally unsustainable right now because like the journalism as an industry hasn't found a way to kind of successfully and substantially monetize itself for the internet yet. But then Mm -hmm. 
it's just so much easier on a lot of levels than if you not easier because obviously these jobs are very rarefied and competitive and difficult to get but if you are one of the people who can get to that level of being like a narrative designer or a narrative writer who gets kind of um called in to sort of write the main story and the main dialogue for the next gears of war title for instance like you've just kind of made it you know like you're you're just kind of like okay like i i don't know like i i had a couple friends when i was more into the game industry that worked at ubisoft i remember and um they would tell me in terms I honestly can't remember, but even if I did, I probably wouldn't want to specify them that much. But like, if you're one of the lead writers on a blockbuster franchise title, like an Assassin's Creed title, like mm-hmm. you do very well for yourself, you know? Um, yeah. Because it's the same thing as writing the screenplay for like, you know, a blockbuster movie or something. Mm-hmm. 